All right, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts. Today we're looking at chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. We're making our way through the book of Acts. If you're new here, uh, this is generally what we do. We, uh, most of our series, our sermon series, go through books of the Bible. We don't only do that. We'll also do a thematic series where we'll tackle a subject, uh, usually a doctrinal subject like uh, pneumatology or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Something like that, uh, the solas of the Reformation. But right now we're in the book of Acts and we're in chapter 4. Now what we're about to read here is just after Peter and John were jailed, they were arrested, jailed, and then tried for obeying God. They were released with threats if they continue to do what God has called them to do. So here we are in Acts chapter 4 starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, teach us today. Not that we would merely be instructed in the way that we are to go. We, we want that. We need that. But we, we need to be taught in our minds, in our hearts. We need to be changed. Lord, we need to receive grace. So we're asking, God, that you would, you would teach us in such a way that we become more like your son and less like the world. That we would become more human in your work of redemption in us and less sinful and corrupt. In Jesus' name, amen. When you read the book of Acts, it's, it's, it's pretty great because, for me, it's pretty great because I see both individuals uh, like, like Peter and John and uh, churches, gatherings of people. Uh, we see these people face uh, temptation and trial and tribulation and a bunch of other T's we could come up with, right? Uh, they, they face difficulty, danger. I'm not trying to do that. Okay, that's, that's everything starting with the same letter. They, they face problems, right? Real problems, whether they are uh, explicit sort of satanic attacks or whether they are uh, persecutions that come from the world without 
these people directly thinking of spiritual matters, they are still related deeply to the spiritual realities of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We see individuals, we see churches facing pain and risk and trouble. And we learn from this. We learn from this. We learn who God is and what God is doing through their afflictions, through their troubles. So before we start in on this passage, I actually want you with me to take a moment to answer a question. And I want it to be as clear as possible in your own mind. What is it that you are facing? Some of you already know what I mean. Some of you don't. Another way to ask it is, uh, what are you facing that you fear? What is the danger that lies ahead? What is the risk? What is the temptation? What is the affliction? What is the pain? What is the suffering? Because I know you, and I know that like me, you are facing trouble. Sometimes we face trouble that we create ourselves, which is embarrassing, but real. Sometimes we're facing trouble that is outside of our control. We didn't bring it on ourselves. It just happened, right? It just happened. So do you know what you're facing? What is overwhelming? What is concerning? Now, what are you doing about it? I mean, I know what a lot of us do. A lot of us pretend uh, it'll just go away. We're like, okay, I just, I'll just kind of chill, not deal with it. And then I won't have to deal with it eventually because it'll just evaporate, right? These problems, we just think they evaporate. Um, I think what a lot of us do though is uh, we just kind of Instagram through it, right? Which a lot of Christians do that. We Instagram through it, meaning, you know what Instagram is. You take pictures of things, you make things look good. Not to be fake, but I think to be, I mean, some people want to be fake. I think most of us, when we post things on social media, we post things that we find beautiful or lovely or desirable, uh, things that are pleasant and that's fine and good. So we show those things. We don't show the ugly things. And so we sort of pretend in our lives, we Instagram through it, right? We don't want to let people know the trouble that we're facing, the danger, the risks, the problem, the fears. So instead, we just share the pleasantries, the good things. We keep it to ourselves. What are you doing about the things that you're facing that are dangerous and troubling to your soul? Are you praying? Maybe. Maybe a little, right? Maybe a little. Some of you a lot. What I find, though, is that when we are facing trials and tribulations and temptations, when we're facing these kinds of realities where there is risk and fear involved, we might start with prayer, but as time goes on, our grip on prayer lessens. And eventually we let go because we really don't know what it means to wait on the Lord. We'll get to that in a minute. But prayer Prayer is absolutely essential, not just to the Christian life, but to your ability to persevere in this world through those troubles. And not just prayer on your own, but prayer with God's people. Here's the principle, the simple principle I want us to grasp in this passage. And the principle is that prayer unites the church in perspective, purpose, and power. Prayer 
prayer above almost anything else has the ability to bring the church together in a proper divine perspective on what it is that we're facing, purpose in the midst of what we're facing and power to face it. Now to to demonstrate that, to make that case, we're gonna look at this passage in in this ways. In this way, I, I want us to see number one, that prayer tends to emerge from a particular problem or need. And that's not a bad thing. Prayer oftentimes, oftentimes emerges from a problem or a need. Secondly, I want us to see that, that prayer addresses more than the need. We'll say it this way. Prayer primarily addresses God. That's number two. Number three, I want us to see that prayer is asking for grace. And then fourth, prayer leads to waiting and worship. I think as we walk through these elements that we see in this passage, we will understand why prayer unites the church in perspective, purpose, and power. So first, how does prayer emerge out of a need? Well, we see it right here in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they, that is Peter and John, were released. Released from what? Released from prison. They were arrested because... God healed a man who was disabled from birth, legit paralyzed, could not take care of himself, somebody that everybody in town knew. God healed him through Peter. This man is healed. He stands up. He's jumping around dancing. He's testifying. Peter gets a crowd. So Peter does, you know, Peter's going to Peter. You know, he's going to talk to people about Jesus. So he starts preaching. He starts telling people about the gospel, about Jesus. And this triggers, right, the leadership, the Jewish leadership in particular around him because he is preaching and teaching on things that they fundamentally don't believe. So they arrest them and bring them to court. So they've been released because they really couldn't do, the courts couldn't do anything to them. But they released them with a threat. If you keep doing this, we will do something. If you keep preaching this stuff, you keep talking about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead and all that stuff, it's gonna get bad for you. So knock it off. That's the context. And so they get out and they run to their friends. I love this. The first thing they do is they go to their friends. Now, why do they go to their friends? Well, they're going to the church, right? They're going to their people. They're going to their family. And they're about to give a testimony. It's testimony time. It's report time. Usually that's fun. Here, the testimony is, well, uh, hey, how'd it go? (laughs) What happened? They're like, well, you know, we were were doing the thing that God called us to do. And uh, we got arrested, thrown into jail. And then uh, they brought us before the courts. And we were told that we can't do this anymore. And if we do, it's going to go really bad for us. We explained to them, well, we have to obey God. So see you later, I guess. I don't know. And then they left. So the reporting back, it's, it's, it's not a particularly positive testimony time, right? It's, a, it's not the most positive report. I mean, people were believing that's good. People were repenting and God was at work. But now there are threats being made against God's people for doing the right thing. And it's in this context of danger It's in this context of need that prayer emerges. There were threats, there's danger, there's risk. And so what do they do? They begin immediately to pray. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices, they start to pray. It's the first thing they do. As soon as they hear about the need, they don't don't start planning. 
They don't start outlining. They don't start troubleshooting. The first thing, all of those things are good. The first thing they do is they begin to pray. This is important. The need itself, the need shared in the context of prayer unites us in a perspective, a shared perspective of a common problem. We, we, we do this when we pray together addressing particular troubles, pain points, and needs. We all see it. We know what we're praying for or praying against. And there's unity there. But this is where we sometimes go wrong because prayer is not fundamentally addressing our needs. A lot of us think of prayer, I mean, if we're just honest, a lot of us, at least we fall into a habit of praying, uh, sort, of, sort of like checking off items on a honeydew list, right? You know, where like your significant other will give you a list of things to do. Like, I want you to, you know, do this before whatever happens. So it like always kind of check them off. And so we get to our prayer list, right? And we're like, we just kind of pray through the needs that we have, the things that we desire. Prayer is not fundamentally addressing our needs. Prayer does address our needs, but prayer is fundamentally addressing God. Prayer addresses God. We are talking to the Lord, the one true God, our triune God. We are talking to the God who actually exists. We're not throwing a Hail Mary out there, just hoping some nondescript God responds. We're not going for generic bottom shelf God who may or may not exist and we're just kind of hoping somebody hears. We're not just throwing it up in the air like, somebody help me. Can anybody hear me? We are talking to the God who is. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are talking to Yahweh, Elohim. And we address him. We're not, listen, the need is there, but the need doesn't move us to merely throw up our hands to focus on the need. It moves us fundamentally to lift up the name of God. And the fundamental way that we do that is through praise and adoration. Praise and adoration. Prayer is not just a listing of things that we want or need. Prayer is a pouring out of the heart or soul to God and it is driven by praise and adoration. It is driven by a voluntary, convictional worship of who God really is in his person and in his work. In fact, when you look at this prayer that comes up, they start to pray immediately, right? They're not troubleshooting the problem. How are we gonna get around this? What are we gonna be sneaky? Are we gonna be bold? What's our strategy? They go straight to prayer, but even then they don't go straight to the ask, right? They don't go straight to the request. They, they instead start with praise and adoration and they begin to address God for who he is. Look at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them. They address God as creator God. They don't start at what, it's not that this is a basic truth about God. It is a fundamental truth about God. He is the maker of all things. And like many in scripture, when prayer begins, they want to address God as the creator, as the maker of all that is. Why, why God as creator? Well, it makes sense, right, for the people of God to be addressing God in this way. Because we know that it's not just that God is the creator. He is our creator. He made me. He made you. 
He created us the way he created us to live where we live in the time in which we live. So we go to our maker, the creator of all, who is the owner of all. It all belongs to him. We're going to beseech the Lord for help, right? And so we address him for who he is, the creator, the owner. In other words, we're going to the one who has the highest authority. Nobody has more authority than God, right? And it's, it's, it's acknowledged in this. You are the creator. You have ultimate authority. Why do we go to people? Why do we appeal to people with authority? Because we got to get something. We got to get something done. Something's wrong. Something's not moving. Like when I went to the Apple store very recently, and I love Apple. I, I'm not like an idolater, but like, you know, fanboy. That's fine. So I like Apple and I've never had a problem. For years been using Apple everything Apple. And uh, so I go to the Apple store and uh, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just say it like this. Uh, they, I don't know what was going on. I don't know if they were high. I don't know. It's Apple. I don't know what was going on. They were not functioning well and they were not, they were not handling any of the situation. They were messing up. They were really messing up. And, uh, and this is not just me venting, right? Because I'm, the ministry assistant, Deb, can back me up on this. So as I'm there and they're messing up and I'm fine. I'm like, hey man, like whatever, I'm trying to be cool. And, but eventually it got so crazy Oh, it's embarrassing. It's like so crazy. I said, I can't believe I said this. I said, yeah, let me, let me talk to the manager, which I know, I know when you say that, it means that you're that person. You're that, you're that person. You're the person who asks for the manager. Oh, everybody look out. Here he comes looking for the manager. That's not what I do. I do like to talk and complain and argue with people, but I don't ask for managers, but I needed help. I, need, I had to appeal to somebody who had authority to fix what was going wrong in this little realm of creation. So I said, let me talk to the manager. And he couldn't do anything either, so it didn't matter. But the point is, we appeal to authority, right? We appeal to authority because we need help. So in prayer, to whom are we appealing? the creator of all that is. He owns it all. He can do anything he wants. He can solve any problem. He can overcome any obstacle. He can empower, he, he can lift us up, he can heal, he can raise from the dead. So that's the appeal. We go to God as creator. And just, I love Psalm 119. I mean, sorry, Psalm 139, specifically verses uh, 13 through 16, because here you see the personal impact of knowing that God is creator and is our creator has on the psalmist. David says, for you formed, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This comes because he doesn't believe that he's just some biological oops or accident. He believes that God is creator God who made all things, including him. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. That's how much of a creator, creator God is. He creates the world. He creates the universe. He fills it all, but he also creates our days. Before there were any of them, they were written down. This is the God to whom we pray. And this is just one aspect of praise and adoration. To praise and adore God is to acknowledge and marvel at who he is. This is just one aspect. Marveling, as God, marveling at God as creator. And they marvel at God as revelator. 
the one who offers revelation, the one who reveals. And he has revealed himself throughout the history of redemption and signs and wonders and mighty works. But for us, most clearly, most definitively, God has revealed himself to us in his word. He has spoken. He is not silent in the midst of our needs, in the midst of our fears. He's not quiet. He's loud. He's given us 66 books. He's given us something that we can trust, something that is perfect, something that is beautiful, something that conveys grace and power when received by faith. Look at verses 25 and 26. So God as creator, addressing him, who through the mouth of our David, of, of our father David, your servant, who said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So in the midst of praying to God, they refer to God's word. They're quoting God's word to God. As they are praising and adoring him, they are acknowledging you have spoken. You've been teaching us. You haven't been silent. And so now they are sharing that God is, they are reveling in that God is one who explains who can't explain, and he doesn't owe it to us. God doesn't have to explain anything. I used to get so annoyed when I would ask my dad to explain something to me. You know, I didn't ask, I, basically I was asking for the manager with my dad, I'm sure. But I was like, my dad would say something, I'd be like, but why? Why has this gotta be this way? And his answer would be, yeah, oh, little man wants to rage. Little, I just, oh, it would make me so upset. Um, and while it's true, it shouldn't matter. He has the authority of the position. I should just do it because he said so. But in my weakness, I wanted to know. He didn't know me an explanation. And sometimes, sometimes dad would, my sister know. Sometimes he would say, okay, this is why. But sometimes, a lot of times he'd be like, because I'm your dad, so just do it, dummy. And then you gotta do it. Well, God, how kind is God? Does he owe us anything? And look at how he explains Look at how detailed he has explained. He has given us his word. He has explained himself to us. He doesn't have to explain himself, but he chooses to. He condescends, he condescends to explain to us with our finite, fallen, stupid thinking. He explains himself to us in ways that we can begin to understand. He explains the world to us because we can't even figure that out. He explains ourselves to us. He tells us his plans, he gives us promises. He offers wisdom. And here, as they are praying and marveling at God, the revelator, quoting his word, they quote a section of scripture that essentially answers an aspect of their concerns and fears. The Gentiles rage, the people plot in vain. In other words, the world sets itself against God and his anointed, against God and Christ. You know what it's like? It's like as they're praying, before they even get to the ask, they're preaching to themselves part of the answer. Don't be surprised. It's always been this way. Of course they're gonna come against you. Of course you're gonna face this kind of a trouble. It's always been this way. The world stands against the Lord and against his anointed. You think, he's, you think the world's not going to stand against Jesus and there you are preaching Jesus? The Puritans, uh, Matthew Henry in particular at least, but there were a couple that I've read, Puritans who, sa who said when, 
we are praying to God, we are actually preaching to ourselves. This doesn't mean that you're not actually talking to God. We are, but when you're properly talking to the Lord, you are recalling his person, his work, and his promises, right? So you are reflecting on the word, and in doing that, you are preaching to yourself. So here, they're they're telling themselves, Lord, we know we shouldn't be surprised. This is what you said would happen. So they're praising God. They're addressing God. God creator, God revelator, and then they get into God as ruler, God as truly sovereign. Look at verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Well, that's... That's an, those are uncomfortable verses for some people. I'll, let's just be honest. Because, you know, we'd like to talk about God as sovereign. Everybody, all Christians like to talk about God as sovereign. God's sovereign. He's in control. God's got this. We like that. God's got it. He's sovereign. Uh, he's all powerful. He can do whatever he wants. We all like that. But then when you start to spell out like the ways in which scripture says God is sovereign, the, the extent of his sovereignty, it can make us feel a little uncomfortable. We don't always know what to make of it. But clearly God is in control. In reflecting in their prayer on that passage of scripture that says the world will stand against the Lord and his anointed, they go, yeah, and this is what happened with Jesus. And it wasn't just like a couple of people. It were the, the, the Roman politicians plus the Jews and the Gentiles. Everybody, everybody was against Jesus, really, in the end. And so they say what? That this Jesus was rejected by Pilate and Herod and Jews and Gentiles. And they all wound up doing exactly what God predestined to happen. So when we're praying, right? We are addressing God in light of a problem, in light of danger, in light of affliction. And there's an aspect in which we, we have to acknowledge that our trouble, our pain, somehow fits into the plan. This does not mean that God is the author of sin. Scripture is clear he is not. It does not mean that God is the immediate cause of all the bad things that happen in your life. But it does mean that God is sovereign over every bad thing that happens in my life, over every bad thing that you encounter, over every difficulty, question mark, over your anxieties, your fears, God is still sovereign and will use them for good. And the reason we know this is because of what we see happening in Christ. Jesus suffered evil at the hands of wicked men in ways that we will never fully comprehend. Jesus wasn't just an innocent man who was murdered, he was a righteous man. Not just a righteous man, but the righteous one, the God-man, the pure and holy son of God, the actual creator and sustainer of all that is. The benevolent, good, loving God. That's Jesus, and he was murdered. It was a wicked thing. It was the worst thing that has ever happened in creation. You know that. 
Nothing worse has ever happened. And we can think of all kinds of things, but nothing worse has ever happened because in that act, the son of God was murdered. And yet, as evil as that is, they wound up doing what God predestined to happen. They are held responsible for their evil acts and yet God uses it to accomplish redemption and salvation to bring life to the spiritually dead, to show love for the unlovable. So again, as they're praying and recalling scripture, they're preaching to themselves, in the midst of our afflictions, we should know that God is sovereign. And though evil people may assault us, or I may be going through very painful, difficult circumstances, I can know that God has got a plan that transcends this experience. This is God as ruler. He is sovereign over evil actions. He is sovereign in our salvation. They're addressing God for who he is, and just in part. He is the ruler, the revelator, the creator and when we pray together, in particular, right, when we pray together and we are praising God and adoring God for who he is, by the way, which is theology, it's just doctrine, doctrine put into play, we are then experiencing a greater form of unity by sharing in a biblical or divine perspective on who God is, on what God has done, on, on what God is doing and what God's promises are. Prayer actually reinforces doctrine in our minds and in our hearts because it's calling it all to mind so that we can trust in who God says that he is. So prayer emerges out of a need, yes, but prayer addresses God more than the need. And then, yes, prayer does, in a sense, address the need, right? But let's put it this way. Prayer seeks for grace. Prayer is looking for grace. All prayer is asking for something that we don't deserve in the end because God owes us nothing. So in verse 29, it says, and now Lord, look upon their threats, there's the problem, right? And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, there's the ask. There's the real need. Prayer seeks for grace like this. You see, I want to encourage you in this. The need, the need should move you to a specific ask or a specific request in your prayer life. Identifying the, the problem or the, the, the context is easy because it's usually a pain point. Lord, I'm in trouble. Uh, this is unpleasant. Either I did this to myself or somebody's doing this to me or I'm going through this and I don't know what's going on. Like there is something painful happening. There's an affliction, there's a need. And so it's easy to identify the problem. It's harder to ask for the specific help that you need. And I think it's important that we try, especially in prayer. It's important that we attempt to identify what we specifically need from God so that we can specifically ask for that thing. Now, there are gonna be times, there are going to be times, there will be real times when you just don't know. You don't have any idea, you don't, I don't know what the answer is to my problem, I just know what the problem is, and that's okay. In fact, it says this in Romans chapter eight, verse 26. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You're gonna get there. Maybe you're there now when you just, you don't have the words and it's okay. It's okay if you don't have the words because no one knows you better than God. The Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit knows you. The Spirit knows the Father like there. There is no question that your unspoken, unarticulated, confused mess of prayerful yearnings aren't heard by God. They are heard by God, clear. But as much as we can, it is important that we articulate the problem and the need, what we at least think is best. Like we should pray specifically for this. Because when you do that, when you pray for God to meet a very specific need and God answers, there is no confusion. You don't miss it. You can't miss it. Write it down. Get a book going. Get a journal. Get a spiral. Use little three-by-five cards. I don't care, but if it's a great idea to write down the needs, the problems, but put down those specific asks and see what God does. You will not be able to help but praise and testify and marvel at how God generously answers his people. Prayer seeks for grace, right? Now, what are they seeking for here? Now, here, in context, they're asking for boldness. They're not asking for the world to stop persecuting them. And they might, but we don't have any evidence of that. They're not asking for an easy life. They're not asking for political power. They're not working for any of that. What they're saying is, is, hey, uh, Lord, we know you've called us to do something here. Would you please give us boldness to do that thing? That thing. What is boldness anyways? Boldness. I'll tell you what boldness is not. Boldness is not being a bully. It's not being a big mouth either. You could be a big mouth jerk bully and not be bold at all. You can just be annoying. But boldness, boldness is a willingness to act in the midst of adversity. I mean, if we're talking a general definition, right? Boldness is the willingness to take a risk for a potential reward. But Christian boldness, to put a finer point on it, for us, Christian boldness is more than that. Christian boldness is Confidence in God that gives us courage in crisis. That's at least how I'm defining it. Christian boldness is confidence, not in ourselves, right? You can be confident in your gifts, in your ability, in your looks, if you like, that's fine. But none of that matters really here. We are supposed to be confident in God. That's what Christian boldness is. Confident in God that he knows us, loves us, has us, is sovereign, is worthy, has a plan. It's confidence in God that then produces courage in crisis. Courage when we face crisis. Courage when we're looking at the thing that causes us to to be afraid. So, who needs boldness? Why would anybody pray for boldness? You want to? If you don't know, I'll tell you. People who pray for boldness are afraid. Sometimes people that talk about boldness do not want to admit that they are afraid. They're praying that they would be bold, but never admitting that they're afraid. They are pretending at best and lying at worst. I know, the Bible says, be not afraid. 
I, I hear preachers say, the Bible says 365 times, one time for every day of the year, be not afraid. It actually doesn't, so don't listen to those preachers. They're making that up. I hate it when preachers lie. Um, but it does, at least in principle and in a variety of ways, probably more often than that, say that we should not be afraid of man, that we should fear the Lord and all of that's fine. But we think we hear these commands like, be not afraid, be not afraid. And we get the idea that like, oh, wow, to be afraid means you're weak and pathetic or that you're probably in sin. I think the truth is, we are all afraid. We're all afraid of something or of many things. I'm not afraid of everything, but I am truly afraid of some things. And we can be simple and silly about it. I'm not afraid of snakes. I'm not afraid of spiders. You, most of you know I am legit, illogically terrified of spiders. I can hold a snake, rat, don't care. Spiders can't do. But then we look at our lives, right? There are lives, in our, there, are, there are things that you will be confronted with that will terrify you. We are all afraid. That's the reality. This is why God says so often, don't be afraid. It's not because it's wrong to be afraid. It's because you are afraid. So now he says, in a, in a, and this is not what our, our time is about, but in a variety of ways, he says, listen, you're afraid. Here's how you deal with your fear. Here's what you need to do. Look at me. Don't look at that. Look at me in the midst of this problem. Look at me. Trust me. Know me. And I can dispel your fears. So who's praying for boldness? People that are afraid. That's right. Peter and John were afraid. I think so. And it doesn't mean that they were too afraid to do anything. It just means that fear is a reality. Who wouldn't be afraid when the government says, oh, um, if you do this thing that God called you to do, we're going to hurt you. Now we know the whole story, what that really means. It means we're going to destroy your life. It means that we're going to torture you. It means that we're going to pull you literally apart limb from limb, not metaphorically. It means we'll crucify you upside down, cut off your head, saw you in two. It means we'll put you on an island and let you starve to death. It, that's scary. So when you go back and you start thinking like, well, what am I facing? What am I fearing? It's, it's, it's a normal thing that we would be fearful in certain situations. And so here, they're afraid. They, they want to obey God, so they're praying for boldness. We're afraid, man. We're afraid even spiritually. We're sometimes afraid because we're called to trust God in the midst of doubt, crouching at our door, challenging our faith. It's a, we're afraid to deal with that. Sometimes we're afraid to obey God because it's hard to obey God or it's risky to obey God. So they pray for boldness. They, they pinpoint it, right? Now they know. They know what their need is, and we see in the end, they get exactly the thing they're praying for. They preach and teach. They continue with boldness. But they're asking for something, right? They're asking for boldness. Do they deserve boldness? Have they earned it? No, it is a gift of grace. They are asking God to give them what they do not deserve. It's undeserved. All prayer is asking for grace. It's needed. It's necessary, but it's not deserved. That puts us in the posture of gratitude and thankfulness and humility. Fourth and finally, we'll be quick here. Prayer leads to waiting and working. All prayer leads to waiting and working. There is no prayer that doesn't lead to waiting and working. All prayer leads to waiting because what is prayer, right? It is a pouring out of our heart, our soul to God, asking for his grace to meet specific needs. And then what do you do? You wait 
right? You wait. Sometimes the wait is short. Praise God, love that. Sometimes the wait is long. Ain't nobody like that. Nobody likes waiting. Waiting is annoying, frustrating. It can be painful. It can be terrifying. But we got to wait. Now, here's the thing that we get wrong about waiting. A lot of us think that waiting is being passive and chilling and doing nothing. That's not what waiting is. Waiting is patient endurance in the midst of hardship for God to respond to our request for help. And in that sense, waiting is active because a lot of us think, oh, if you've got to wait, what do you do? It's time to wait. You sit down and you turn on, you go and get your oil changed. And what do you do? You got to wait. So what do you do? You sit down, you play with your, if you have a phone, you play with your phone or you watch the TV, you read a magazine, you distract yourself. You're not focused on the car, right? You're not focused on the technicians unless you're super uptight. You know, you're super uptight. You're like that person. If you're going to ask for the manager, if you're one of those types, then you're going to watch. You're going to be very focused. But most of us, we just shift into passivity, right? We're not, that's not waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is actually focusing on the Lord. It's looking to him and going, okay, I'm watching you. I'm waiting because I know you're going to do something here and I want to see it when it happens. That's what it means to wait. We don't have time to look at all of them, but let me just give you one verse. Micah chapter seven, verse seven. But as for me, I will look to the Lord Look to the Lord, which means what? I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. That's Micah 7, 7. So he says, looking to the Lord and waiting for the Lord are the same thing. It's looking, it's trusting, it's applied theology. It's anticipatory, it's eagerness, but it's also working, right? Prayer always leads to working because when we are asking for God's help and grace, it is to what? It is to live it is to live in this world for God's glory, which means prayer always involves trust, right? Faith, but also acting, working, moving. So it's prayer. We see it here. Prayer is what unites the church in perspective, purpose, and power. We all face fears and anxieties and dangers and frustrations and so we pray and we should be praying we should be praying together with each other for each other over each other and when we pray together we gain a shared perspective on who God is and what he is doing through prayer as we adore him and marvel at his character person and work and prayer gives us the divine perspective on our circumstances prayer helps us with that because when we pray to God we're preaching to ourselves and as we pray together, we develop a shared sense of purpose because our prayers for God's help are always offered in the context of our unique calling. Peter and John were called to preach. They were told not to. They got to obey God. They know their calling, so they pray for boldness so they can get back to the work God's called them to do. They see God's purpose in their affliction. They see God's purpose in their life and their unique calling. Prayer helps to clarify that, and prayer also gives us a greater sense of power because we are pleading with, God's, with God for his grace to empower us to persevere by faith. I want us to be a people who pray, right? Not because I want us to be a people who pray. I don't want us to pray because we're supposed to pray. I want us to pray because God is worth exalting and exalting in. Because God is the only hope that we have for life in this world, particularly when we're facing these real, these real threats, dangers, these risks, these temptations, these afflictions, these questions that we don't have answers to. 
We can deal with them on our own, or we can go to the God of all grace who helps. And we have this assurance because Christ, because Christ, his son, has died for our sins and rose from the dead. We are reconciled to God, and he hears every prayer, verbalized or silent. He hears them all. He knows them all. So let's take them all to him with full hearts and do it together. Let's see what God does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help. We need your grace every day. And would you, would you encourage us to be a people who pray together? who pray for each other, who are honest with ourselves, with you and with each other. Help us to trust you, which will then allow us to trust each other maybe a little more. But Lord, we want to be a people who pray fervently, specifically because we want to see you at work. We want to see you glorified in our lives as you meet our needs, as you help us with our weaknesses. In Christ's name, amen.